again, this is McElroy McKinney from the Bodic College. So, here's your D&D factoid for today. How tall are elves? Well, they average 5'4 and max out at 5'8 in the D&D Rule Cyclopedia. In AD&D 1st and 2nd edition, as well as the 3rd edition of the game, they average 5'1 and max out at 5'5. When it comes to the 2014 Player's Handbook, they're all around 5'5 and reach the lofty point guard heights of 6'2. That's a basketball reference, folks. Basketball. But if you read the Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance books, they're the same height or taller than humans, going all the way back to the old Grey Box set or the Dragonlance novels. Basically, Gygax wanted us to know that TND elves were not Tolkien elves. Unless, of course, they were. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. Well, you both love... Well, we both love lots of other RPGs. D&D is the wraith that just haunts all of our pretty, pretty dice. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast the Stu's podcast since 2017, and in 2021 I became head gnome, but we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> and I am Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stu, and I promise I'll actually start working on reviews again after <laughs> a little bit of a hiatus here. <laughs> and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stu, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, or not, We'll be looking at developments in various D&D-related games, and then we'll check out some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. We got nothing. We really don't. We, 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 we got nothing. <laughs> Both of my games that I'm playing in got disrupted by a variety of things. Um, one was a, a family trip uh, where the GM was going out of town and not going to be available. The other, our GM is moving. And that kind of throws a wrench in the plans of getting to play any consistency or the like. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was actually unavailable this past Saturday anyway. So we had two weeks in a row where we didn't play. I'm hoping to get to play this coming weekend. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Not even the holiday season yet. I know. Yeah, I've got nothing on my uh, schedule to run until November. And then both my in-person Saturday group and my Thursday group should finally be able to get back together again. Hooray! <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. But um, until then... This is just the type of thing that happens. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's Life gets in the way sometimes. I think I will be able to play in Brandis' online game tomorrow night. But I'm not running anything for a while. <laughs> So moving on into our Dungeon Masters workshop, uh, there has been a lot of movement on various versions of D&D based on the 5th edition SRD uh, in the last few months. So much movement that we haven't been able to keep up with all of the news. Uh, because of this, we wanted to take an episode and touch base with a lot of these developments in different playtests and products. All of these playtests have far more detail than we are going to be exploring. Uh, so we're only going to be hitting the highlights of what has happened in each variation. We are, of course, going to start <laughs> with D&D. They have dropped the one D&D moniker, uh, apparently because they really didn't want the name getting attached to the final product 
whatever it ends up <laughs> being. Uh, so now we're back to just, you know, I quote, just Unearthed Arcana. First up is going to be playtest number six, which came out back in June. Jared, you want to give us a rundown of what this one contained? I sure will. It was a little bit of a hot hot button topic. I just barely managed to get a, a playtest feedback in on this one, and then it all kind of <laughs> started rolling in a little bit too fast. So, And the Player's Handbook playtest number six. First off, we had the revision of the Bard, which was in my opinion, better than the previous Bard. That's not saying a lot. Yeah, it's not not saying much. The big highlights, obviously a lot of things happened and there's tweaks going on all over the place, but I'm just going to hit the main things here. Bardic Inspiration, a lot of the wording on Bardic Inspiration changed to once you made your roll, but it didn't matter if you, you know, if you knew you, you failed, you can still use your Bardic Inspiration. So that's kind of a nice change. It's not just, you know, I guess maybe I'll need a D6 to add on to this. And I'm really hoping we see that design moving forward into a lot of things. I know a lot of GMs tend to run their games that way anyway. Oh, yeah, definitely. They'll let you know so you don't waste it. Probably one of the strangest things that made it into this version of the Bard was that Bards can be Arcane, Divine, or Primal. They got to pick which spell list that they wanted to... uh you know, pick their spells from. Spoilers, this does not last long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they released four different subclasses for each of these classes just to get some more subclasses playtested. I'm not going to bring up all of them. I'm just going to kind of bring up the ones that are really noteworthy. The College of Dance was brand new. And what it kind of did was it incorporated some unarmed strikes and some... Uh, agility-based, you know, armor class improvements. So it kind of gave you a little bit of monk ability on top of your bardic ability. So what do you think about that one, Ange? <laughs> I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I'm still, I to be completely honest, I haven't been paying as much attention to these because I don't have time and effort to devote to them without <laughs> getting frustrated at some of the things they're proposing that I think are poor choices mm -hmm. and a lot of what we were seeing with the bard was like oh man what did a bard ever do to hurt you because oh, yeah. this is painful uh it gets worse with the warlock <laughs> but yes <laughs> some of these changes are definitely improvements in the right direction i do like that they set up inspiration so you didn't have to waste it you could wait and find out if it mm. you know you stood a chance of succeeding with the extra roll from the the inspiration. I find the the arcane diviner primal a little weird. It feels like it was because they were very, very stuck in that not wanting to mix classes being able to pull from different types of magic. Mm -hmm. But I suppose it would allow you to make your healing bard. This update to the bard made it a lot easier to do the support bard, which they kind of nerfed heavily with the first version of the bard. Right. But mm, there, we'll see in the next playtest, there's some things that are obviously not going forward with that. So the next class was the cleric. The biggest thing I would say they did with the cleric in this version, divine intervention. They said they got a lot of feedback saying that people don't like that divine intervention may not work. So now divine intervention is just a thing you can use to emulate a spell of a certain level, depending on what level your cleric is. And you can cast it. Once per long rest without spell components. Uh, 
I don't like that. I kind of liked the swing for the fences, ask my God for something like ridiculous. I think this comes down to the fact that we have people playing this game in drastically different ways. Yes. Um, we have people out there who play the game very beholden to the rules and they look for ways to break the rules mm -hmm. to do wild and fantastic things. The GMs running those games were terrified of this divine intervention because it meant there was a percentage chance that they could ask for something absolutely ridiculous and actually have it happen. On the other hand, you have folks running it more story-based, a little more loose, you know, loosely, mm -hmm. and divine intervention as a chance to have the gods show up and do something is kind of cool on a grand story level. Yeah. And it is really hard to write rules to accommodate both of those groups. Yes. Without getting really, really finicky. Because, like, this version, I'm sure it makes things much happier for the GMs who run those very, in, what's the word I'm looking for? Crunchy games? Yeah. Where you're you're leaning into the mechanics and the rules like that, but it kind of screws over the folks that lean more into the, oh, this is a cool thing that would make for a great story beat in the game. And, and I've literally seen people that manage to pull off a divine intervention where they don't ask for anything specific. They're just like, Hey, if you're keeping an eye on us, please do something. And that's a fun thing to just hand the DM. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of more what I would interpret divine intervention to be. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I don't like this. From a purely mechanical standpoint, one of the things that I don't like is that once you can emulate a fifth level spell, unless you have multiple party members dying and for some reason you had to wait to raise all of them, one of the main things that's a, that is a detriment to bring people back from the dead is just gone now because you can use your divine intervention to do raise dead. Yeah. And now it doesn't cost any extra money. Once a day. Yeah. It just, I don't know. <laughs> not, not thrilled with that. Um, the Druid got a few interesting things in this particular packet. Um, they reversed the stat block templates for their wild shape forms. And they introduced the idea that you have a set number of animals that you know and you can swap out animals that you know when you gain levels. They added Primal Order to match Divine Order and Cleric because a lot of what I had heard online, which I agreed with, is that Druids didn't have a lot in the core Druid class. Like a lot of Druid abilities lean heavily mm -hmm. on what they get from their subclasses. So they added this Primal Order thing, which is sort of like the Clerics where it's like, are you more of an armored caster that, you know, uses martial weapons or are you more of a dedicated spellcaster? And they added those same choices into the Druid. They added elemental fury into their uh, damage uh, to their uh, strikes, which is very much like what the cleric gets at a certain level, except that instead of radiant damage, it's, you know, you're picking some elemental damage that, you know, fits your conception of the Druid. And as far as the subclasses go, they also heard a lot of the comments online about how Circle of the Moon was actually Circle of Pokemon because <laughs> you were just turning into various <laughs> elemental animals. So they reworked it to where it was a lot more moon focused. Like there's a little bit of shape changing involved, but it's also like moonbeams and transporting via light and things like that. The, the previous version was very much like, what does this have to do with the moon? <laughs> I am turning into a fire pony. <laughs> Like all good people from the moon do. I choose you, Ponyta. 
Um, and as a side note, I have no idea if I am actually pronouncing any Pokemon's name correctly, so don't come at me. I'm old enough that the only Pokemon that I played was on the uh, was on the Game Boy, so I didn't hear anything pronounced. <laughs> I played Pokemon Go. I never played any of the other games, so. <laughs> My main thing with the Druid is... I like that they did hear that people were saying, hey, the core druid needs something other than just what it gets from the subclasses. And it also needs something that isn't just about wild shaping, because if you don't pick a subclass that that really leans into wild shapes, then you're not getting much out of the core class. Yeah, it does almost feel like the it's too much a cut and paste of exactly what the cleric gets now. But I don't want to overly get nitpicky about it. Yeah, the the previous version was very much like, you really want me to wild shape, don't you? Yeah. Like there was no other option to go with the druid other than leaning into wild shape. I have seen some people that aren't thrilled with the, you have X number of animal shapes and you know, you swap them in and out. And part of what I heard with that is that people don't like the idea that you can't use an animal shape as like puzzle solving. Like I'm going to make a mouse as one of my shapes so I can fit through that tiny little thing. They're not because it's something I want to use for combat. Right. I'm not sure how to how to best solve that and solve for what they're trying to solve for, which is you don't want players paging through the monster manual as they're getting ready to turn into something. You want them to actually have a few stat blocks ready to go. Like I said with the cleric, I think this is another one of those areas that ends up they're kind of trying to design for the crunchy player. Mm-hmm. Not every group is going to be leaning into the crunch. Yeah quite as hard as that and it kind of does hamper some of the storytelling options i mean this is something i think D has dealt with for the entire duration of its existence yeah it's just sometimes they end up trying to design more in one way to accommodate for the players that like the crunch and like bending the rules and nearly breaking them i mean as a house rule i would not be upset about saying hey you know how to transform into four animals, but as long as you promise me you won't take too long to look them up, yeah. you don't have to predetermine them. Yeah. It's just once you hit four, that's the ones you know until you get another level. The monk was another one that got a rework. This was the first time we saw the monk in this uh, new 2024 player handbook format. Basically, there are some interesting things because some of it is terminology. The monk is very much based on the Eastern conception of a monk that specifically studies martial arts. And that was very much filtered through people watching an old seventies TV series with martial arts in it and thinking that they understood a culture. So there are some things that kind of got a little tweaked in this version. It's still basically someone that's very spiritual that can also, you know, learn how to channel their abilities into their martial arts. But for example, they changed key into discipline points in part because key is actually something that various real world religions and philosophies actually use as a terminology. So, I mean, I guess from that standpoint, it's probably as good to do that as to (laughs) not say you have five points of Holy spirit. If you're a paladin, one of the things that they did too, is they increased the martial arts uh, die type. So the monk is hitting a little bit harder from the start. Good. Because is it in current fifth edition as it exists, if you really want to play a character who is good at unarmed combat, you make a fighter, not a monk. 
which mm-hmm. is not what most people want to hear when they want to play a monk. Yeah, and it's nice getting those extra, like, you know, 1D6s, but you want, like, your bigger weapon to hit with your main attack, you know, when you're a monk there. But they up that damage. They added weapon mastery so that whenever you are using a weapon, you can use those special qualities that they have now defined for certain weapons. My favorite addition, they added deflect energy, which is basically if somebody rolls to hit you with a spell, you can deflect that now. I love that. I said that immediately made me think of Yoda catching uh, Dooku's or uh, lightning bolts. <laughs> um, as far as the subclasses go, they completely rebuilt the way of four elements because that was the lowest ranking subclass like in the entire game. Yeah. Um, because it tried to be a bender, but it tried to be a bender that was even worse than the uh, benders that showed up in M. Night Shyamalan's version of uh, Avatar. <laughs> oh, that's low. <laughs> that's saying something bad. For the most part, I don't have a lot to say here. I think increasing the martial arts die type, that's definitely not something that I think is going to make them overpowered. Um, one thing I have heard, them, I want to see how weapon mastery works with some of the monk abilities, because I think that's kind of an interesting strategy thing. Oh, another thing that they did tweak that will be important to some people is the monk's ability to stun people has been a little um, lessened. So you're not nearly as likely to have a monk that just keeps stunning people so everyone else in the party can hit them while they're stunned. I mean, that can save a party's butt on occasion. It can, but I know there are definitely some frustrated DMs that have creatures that never get to take any actions. (laughs) I have three legendary actions and I can't take any of them because I'm stunned. Then we get to the paladin, which I think the design philosophy for paladins is there's nothing wrong with paladins except that they need to be more awesome. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest thing they did this time was they gave paladins lay on hands as a bonus action, and I don't think they needed to do that. I like it as a bonus action, but at the same time, I do think whoever designed these rules got bullied by a bard (laughs) and a warlock, and their best friend was a paladin. Other than smite, not being able to use smite more than once per turn, almost everything else has been adding more and more stuff to the paladin. (laughs) I mean, after watching uh, the the D&D movie, uh, Honor Among (laughs) Thieves, it's like... (laughs) Zenk was their character. Yes. (laughs) The other thing, though, that they did do is they formally made all of, since you can only smite once per turn now, they just turned all smites into paladin-only spells. If you cast smite at third level, you're getting 2d8 plus 2d8 damage when you smite someone. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of a semantics thing. Yeah. It's you were having to spend your spell slots to smite anyway. Yeah. You're still using the same number of spell slots. It's just formally framed as a spell instead of something that's using spell slots. So, yeah. The next thing that we got is the ranger, the new version of the ranger. And <sighs> the first thing they did was they removed the ability to maintain hunter's mark without concentration because... Their words were that it was too unbalanced. And I am going to say massive BS to that. (laughs) Yeah, because I've been playing a ranger. There is absolutely no reason the ranger should have to maintain concentration for Hunter's Mark. I would love to hear the playtest reports where the the ranger was so dominant because they didn't have to maintain concentration that they had to change that. That just seems really weird to me. 
they did gain weapon mastery just like a lot of other classes because that was one of the things they were doing with these is working weapon mastery in now that they've introduced that system. So now if you're a ranger, there's a few weapons where you know their extra tricks that they can do. They no longer get cantrips. And part of why they don't get cantrips is they said that was kind of what they took away to give them weapon mastery. That doesn't make any sense. But I mean, I didn't I didn't like them having cantrips anyway. Right. It felt like a distraction on the class. Mm -hmm. Instead of just giving them expertise, your expertise that you get has to be tied into one of the initial skills that you get as a ranger so that it's a little bit more thematic to you are good at being a wilderness person. And they also added in some abilities where you get advantage in a certain terrain that you pick. And I'm kind of glad to see that back too. Weirdly, they added in a few abilities where you just automatically know some spells that are like Conjure Barrage and things like that. First off, I am I like Weapon Mastery because it reinforces that rangers hit things with weapons and that they aren't primarily spellcasters. Yes. I like that they lost cantrips because that's reinforcing that they aren't primarily casters, which was the problem. Like the previous ranger was more effective than the 2014 ranger, but it also was starting to turn into this thing that, you know, could just be a spellcaster all the time. I really like that they added back the terrain abilities and they did one of the things that I wish they would do, which is basically you can swap out your terrain on a long rest because it's basically, it's not so much that the ranger only knows this terrain. It's that the ranger has to spend some time attuning to that terrain to understand it, you know, listening to the animals and seeing what kind of flora and fauna are around. Yeah. I don't know why they keep trying to give them ranged abilities though. Like I'm not saying you shouldn't have ranged rangers, but what I'm saying is, is by automatically giving them things like Conjure Barrage, it's basically saying, even if you're a melee ranger, we're going to give you this ability that does nothing for you unless you stop and use a ranged attack. <laughs> like, stop it. I just want to hit things with a sword. <laughs> well, I got to say, playing a ranger that they specifically designed to be an archery ranger, mm -hmm. rangers are not the rangers I remember. No. You could design your Legolas. Mm -hmm. You know, or your, your, I mean, your Aragorn with the bow instead of Aragorn with the sword. But that option isn't as dynamic and exciting in 5th edition as it was in previous editions. And I mean, that might be something when we get a chance to play around more with weapon mastery. Maybe some of the weapon masteries with ranged weapons will make it feel a little bit more dynamic. Because that is one part of these playtests I have really not had a chance to explore is ever since they've, you know, introduced the... The weapon mastery traits. Yeah. Rogues got a really neat thing. First off, they get weapon mastery, like most of the other things that are expected to stand in front of something and stab it or use weapons to attack things. But they also added cunning strike. And what cunning strike is, is there's certain conditions or special tricks that you can pull off and they cost you a certain number of sneak attack die. So like if you want to blind a foe, you know, you might lose 2d6 of damage, but then you also blinded this foe as well. There's a whole range of other things. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but I like that kind of added, you know, basically being able to do dirty tricks on top of just doing the extra damage. Yeah, I like that. I mean, the, the joy of being a rogue is rolling all of the dice <laughs> to remove somebody's kidney. But <laughs> like being able to say, no... I know I'm not going to be able to take this guy out in this turn, but I'm going to do something that's going to hinder him 
to aid my allies. Like, I'd sacrifice 2d6 of sneak attack damage for that. Well, especially if you get into one of those situations where it was like, okay, I got an 18. Did I hit? No. (sighs) I got a 22. Did I hit? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to spend a couple of my hit dice and you know, blind this person so that we have advantage to hit them because yeah, yeah, it's a nice tactical option that they added on there. Yeah. So, um, that's way back in June. (laughs) What are your general thoughts on this? Obviously some of this is going to change as we move into the next bit they released. The bard is, is weird because that's going to be in flux because of a lot of other things that are coming up, but I like this druid much better. I'm waiting for something to feel magical that they add to it and nothing does, but it also doesn't feel bad. It doesn't feel like they're super focused on wild shaping like the previous version. The monk seems solid. I think they were talking about potentially giving them more discipline points to play with because they feel like the current version of the monk doesn't have quite as much uh, resources to play around with to do their special stuff. I mean, they've done that to a lot of the classes. Oh yeah, definitely. You can do this as many times as you have a proficiency bonus. Screw you. That means I have two options until mm-hmm. fifth level. Like, screw yep. you. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I have feelings about that. Oh, no, I totally get it. Paladin is fine. I just keep laughing because of all of these things. Like, Paladin is just standing there happy the entire time of this playtest has been rolling out. Ranger, I really do like that they have reintroduced this feeling that they aren't just a skill monkey class and they aren't just a spellcaster. They feel like it matters that they're using weapons and it matters that they are connected to nature again. And even if they are kind of minor abilities, I like that nod to that story. Yeah. And like I said, I really love the cunning strike in the rogue. I think that's a neat addition to that class. Yeah. That's a very neat addition. So next up is Unearthed Arcana Player's Handbook Playtest number seven, which came out in early September. Uh, What was in this one? Uh, Yeah, I finally had to like force myself to dig into this one because because we've had some family health issues. uh, This one completely passed me by and I didn't get to put any any feedback on this one. But remember all of those standardized subclass levels that we saw for the last uh, several months of uh, playtest material? That's gone. (laughs) The only thing that they are doing now that's changing subclasses is. Every subclass's first level is at third level, but all of the other subclass levels are at the same levels they were in in the 2014 Player's Handbook. And part of why they did that is because that means that to convert older material, all you have to do is say, if if they get a subclass ability at first or second level, they now get it at third. Doesn't this still screw over kind of the rogue because the rogue had that massive gap between (laughs) subclass abilities? And the rogue is who I feel the worst for with this because the rogue does have a huge gap. They go until ninth level before they get their second ability. Yeah. And this does not let the rogue get any new fun toys to play with to make their subclasses. Rogues, in order to make their subclasses feel like they're substantial, need to get a lot of stuff up front at third level. And it makes them feel top heavy. Yeah. But otherwise, they're not getting anything until ninth level. Yeah. The other thing that we found out is that Arcane, Divine, and Primal spell lists are all gone. We now have gone back to the era of if you have a class that can cast spells, you will have a dedicated spell list that tells you what spells your class can cast. 
I understand the primal spell list is gone, mm-hmm. but are they keeping kind of the idea of primal being a thing still? I think to some extent, yes, because if you read like the barbarian text where anytime they're, they're really kind of pushing this idea that a lot of the barbarians abilities kind of come from primal power sources. So it does feel like that is still something that they want to reintroduce from like the fourth edition era where it's not just, you know, divine and arcane, but there's actually this primal, you know, power source for supernatural things as well. I'm really curious to see if they specifically, you know, start tagging spells as being one or the other based on what class they are. Yeah. But everybody's got their own dedicated spell list back if they are a spellcasting class. It really felt it like it was twisting some classes too hard mm-hmm. to make it work. Like the poor bard. Yeah, the bards were really getting hammered with that, trying to make it work with that paradigm. Um, the yeah. other thing is that trying to give the warlock... Um, I, I see why they tried to make the warlock a half-caster, but the spell list is another reason why if you don't make them half-casters, you have problems. Yeah. Um, And we'll get to that when we get to the Warlock class. But um, the other thing that kind of interweaves between all of these is that, as you mentioned before, and this is a weird thing to kind of roll back, but going, you know, all the way back to Tasha's, we started seeing almost everything instead of saying per ability score bonus, it started saying per proficiency bonus. So that, you know, in other words, if somebody had a high core ability score they weren't getting more uses of an ability than somebody that you know just got you know the number for their proficiency bonus and a lot of these designs have rolled back to ability score bonus being the thing that determines how many times you can use something which is interesting because that's not just rolling back to earlier in the playtest that's rolling back to before a lot of how they designed the tasha's classes to be completely honest i've been frustrated with the tying it to proficiency bonus because you don't get to use that thing, especially since most of them were tied to long resetting on a mm. long rest, meant you got to do something twice per day until fifth level. Like, I already get super frustrated with players who hoard certain special abilities because mm. they don't want to waste them. And that was just going back to making them scared of using them because they'd only get to use it twice per day. You know, but- I would rather have it be... Okay, you have you you've got a plus three in your relevant stat, so you can do it three times per day. Oh, hey, look, fourth level, you bumped it up to eighteen. Mm-hmm. Now you can do it four times per day. Yeah, and there are times when that being able to use something three times instead of two times makes a big difference at yeah. lower levels. Well, especially if you're considering like like action economy of your average adventuring day, you're hoping to get in three encounters mm-hmm. before you have to long rest. And you're not gonna you're not gonna be feeling confident doing that if one of your prime abilities is already spent for the day. Yeah, and I think one I think the main the main thing they were kind of solving for is the multiple attribute dependency, you know, classes, which are mainly your rangers, paladins, monks. And you know, that's one of those things where it's like, do you make something that's going to actually be useful to clerics and bards or are you going to define everything by how many times your poor ranger gets to use things you know it's you know it's tricky but i can understand why they tried it and i can understand why they're backing away from it so yeah (laughs) um, as far as the classes go 
I don't think there's a lot exciting about the Barbarian, except that, and we're going to see this with all of these classes, everything in the classes that they present in this document goes back to assuming that the, the subclasses came in in the 2014, which means a lot of these abilities changed what level you get them because they didn't have to rearrange them because they were standardizing subclass levels. So one of the main things that they did with the Barbarian, there was an ability that they moved way up from like 15th level to 9th that gave them, um, that was letting their strength bonus be the floor of any strength-based skill check. And oh, yeah. Thank goodness they got rid of that because I didn't mind the previous Barbarian, but that one was just ridiculous because it was like, you know, if we need something strength done, we should just let the Barbarian do it because they <laughs> can't fail it. The Barbarian's going to percept things with their strength. Well, they still get to do that. <laughs> but they don't get that ninth level. You know, if your strength is 18, your minimum is 18 that you can get on the skill check. So that's nice. Um, they did also work in weapon mastery to Barbarians as well. Because, you know, they have mean, with weapons. <laughs> all of the classes that, that specialize, that primarily focus on... Can't you know melee combat mm -hmm. or not even melee combat because I think your archers should have it too. Um, like the the bard is a weird one because I've seen people try and be a melee yeah. character, but they're really not. They're really not. But like all of the others sh should have it, other than cleric, druid, sorcerer, warlock, and wizard. And you know, I could very easily see them like if you took like the College of Blades adding you know weapon mastery in as one of those abilities that they yeah. get with that so that's that's an easy thing to fix once you take your subclass for bard too yeah um the fighters um they mainly got all of their stuff going back to their normal levels again but one of the subclasses they introduced was the brawler and the brawler is specialized in unarmed damage and improvised weapons and I have heard a little bit of pushback on this one that it impinges on the monk. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they they do get better, you know, dice for punching things. And that's fine. I don't think they aren't getting things like being able to, you know, spend extra points to stun that, someone or to, you know. That pushback probably goes back to the fact that, as I said... In 5th edition as it stands, if you want to play a character that's good at unarmed combat, you make a fighter, not a monk. Mm -hmm. um, and I can see the monk fans being afraid that this is going <laughs> to swing back in that direction where this fighter subclass makes it, you know, like, that's a better unarmed fighter than the monk. But I don't know that that's what we've seen yet. And I think it's also one of those things that it depends on what you want out of that class, because mm -hmm. you can also make it, you know, the argument, the fighter is the best archer because you can specialize right. it to do damage with a bow. Oh, yeah. Um, Actually, that was one of the things I I found when I was researching yeah. building my ranger. Oh, if you want to play an archer, make a fighter. Yeah. I don't want to make a fighter. <laughs> I want to make a ranger. But me personally, when I play a monk, I want the whole fantasy. Right. So I like the being able to move 60 feet in one round and do ridiculous stuff like that on top of punching people for damage. I can see both of these characters working in a game where you've got the, this is the brute squad. Mm -hmm. He picks things up. He puts them down. He punches them in the face. Yep. And then you've got the monk who is... The master of many things, including 
kicking people in the face. And, you know, if like one of my favorite, you know, subclasses of the monk that gets to like heal people in the middle of punching people, you know, you don't get that sort of thing <laughs> with a fighter that's just good at, you know, hitting people with chairs in their bare fists. Um, the sorcerer, a lot of what they did with the sorcerer was they changed some of those things that were spells that only they got that was in the previous version of the sorcerer. There's still a few of those that are sorcerer only spells, but they kind of scaled those back. And once they moved all of the things back to their regular subclass levels, they also redid the draconic sorcery, the draconic bloodline sorcerer, because one of the things that people didn't like is that, you know, they didn't get wings anymore. They got temporary wings that only stuck around (laughs) for a few minutes. So they have made that a permanent feature at lower level again now. Again, not much that I can say about Sorcerer. I kind of liked some of those spells and they kept some of them. So it's fine. Sorcerers should be able to go boom. That's fine. So the Warlock. Ah, the poor Warlock. Here was a complete 180 because apparently the Warlock as a half caster that worked like all the other spell casters, but they were just a half caster like uh, paladins or rangers was not popular at all. Shocked. This is my shocked face. People like warlocks having that weird, like I can only cast a couple of spell slots, but they refresh when I take a short rest. That's kind of what they picture the warlock being able to do. On an objective level, the warlock has some issues, but the players who like the warlock really, really like their warlock. Mm. And the version they released, it was almost as bad as like, I've talked about not being able to translate my Pathfinder characters to fifth edition. This was almost like you couldn't translate somebody's warlock in fifth edition to the warlock in the next edition or whatever they're going to call this. Like these characters were not the same. Oh yeah. It was a drastic reimagining. And you know, my biggest problem was it kind of worked if you only wanted to play a Hexblade, you know, where yeah. you were a melee focused warlock but it did not work if you just wanted to be the weird guy that wanted to learn how to cast spells but didn't want to do it the same way the sorcerer and the wizard did (laughs) (laughs) we have a we have a warlock in in one of my current games and she's hilarious because she is dumb as a box of rocks (laughs) she's basically a a tabaxi she built this character around her own cat so she's constantly looking surprised and confused at everything that is happening around her, but she was touched by the great old ones, so she has magic. She has no idea what she agreed to. It just gave her things that sparkle. That's what I've always loved about warlocks. They are like the, the D&D equivalent of someone that got a mail-away uh, diploma. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do the work, guys. Okay. I just. They didn't do the work. So they're not wizards. They don't have the natural talent. So they're not sorcerers. (laughs) But they got this starter kit in the mail. (laughs) And sometimes it does things that are inadvisably powerful. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, there's a little bit more, you know, to how they did it. Like they worked some abilities to where you get certain things with your incantations to make it a little bit easier to pull off certain things. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to delve into them a whole lot and I would need to play with them a little bit more, but I do know that they definitely need to pack magic back. And this is one of the reasons they got rid of the split there, because if you give warlocks the entire arcane spell list, 
and you let them keep pack magic, there are certain spells you do not want somebody getting back every time they take a short rest. Yeah. That's where you kind of need the warlock to have a smaller subset of spells than the other arcane casters do. Yeah. And it also fits with that whole, like, I didn't do the work. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, with the way warlocks work, with having a limited number of spells they can cast per short rest, I really don't want the whole spell list to look through. No. I I really don't. Most of the time I'm going to be firing off an Eldritch Blast. (laughs) So... And then having something in case you get into a lot of trouble and then maybe some other utility thing. (laughs) Yep. So then we come to the wizard. The wizard last time around had the weird thing where there was nothing that I thought was objectionable about the wizard except that they turned a bunch of their class abilities into spells. Yeah. So they had this thing where it's like, if you encounter a new spell, you cast the memorized spell spell and then you learn a spell using the memorized spell spell. No spell spells. A lot of what they did with the wizard, in addition to reworking things back to their old subclass levels, is just saying, no, these are class abilities. They're not They're not spells that you have to cast in order to gather other spells to spell. In general, since there were a lot of rollbacks in this particular version, what do you think about that? Was that the right direction to go? Or anything they put out is going to make people on the internet mad. It doesn't yes. matter which direction you go, somebody on the internet is going to be bad. But was this rollback good or bad? I will put it this way. And this is one of those things that just like you were saying, like to a certain extent, you're never going to make everyone happy. But when they first announced that they were going to put out a revision in 2024, they said, this is not a new edition. And then when people started seeing some of the things in the playtest, which again, had that disclaimer saying, this is playtest material. This is not final. Things are going to change before we get to the 2024. We just want your feedback. People were looking at some of those really big changes and saying, this is like a new edition. And what's really funny to me now is I am now hearing people, and I swear some of them are the same, that are looking at these things (laughs) and now kind of going, this isn't enough of a change. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, I think this is in keeping with their original design goals. I think if there was overwhelming support and everybody on the internet loved it, or 90% of the people on the internet loved it, and 90% of the people in the things loved something that was wildly different, they would have changed it. But I think it was just there to say, hey, as long as we're doing a play test, let's see how far we're going to push it. I think it was bound to happen that you're going to have a lot of the wilder changes start creeping back. A lot of the stuff in the early days was throw the spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, you, you younger folk listening, don't actually throw the spaghetti at the wall. <laughs> Because in five months, your mom or your grandmother is going to find it and you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> so moving on to the next play test, they have apparently stopped numbering uh, because this latest one was called <laughs> Unearthed Arcana, Bastions and Cantrips. They're also seeming to pick up the speed with these things now because the previous one came out at the beginning of September and this one came out on October 5th. Uh, and hey, you can actually still give feedback on this one. Because the survey will be available on October 19th. Yes, indeed. We know what cantrips are, but Jared, what the hell are bastions? Walk with me back into the mists of time. (laughs) Back in the old days, it was kind of assumed that by the time you got up around 9th, 10th, 11th level, you would build a stronghold and attract followers, and you only adventured now to pay off your mortgage on your tower or your castle. (laughs) 
and you looked at all of your uh at all the things in your castle and you go this is not my beautiful castle anyway (laughs) (laughs) this is basically giving you a home base i think one of the reasons they didn't number this one is they had even said they're starting to sneak in some dmg content like everything else we've play tested so far has really been player's handbook type material right And this is Dungeon Master Guide material that they're looking at here. And basically, you build a bastion and you generate bastion points. Now, did it say in the playtest, is this GM optional rules or is this expected to be, this is what everyone does? I think it's going to be optional. Um, I mean, and part of it is if you don't put in the money to create a bastion, you don't have one anyway. So, yeah, that's fine. And I mean, I like the I like the idea of the option being there. I just there's a lot of campaigns I've played where this wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And it is to be fair too. Like I I mentioned the old style, you know, like building a castle and attracting followers. This isn't exactly that. This is more like having a home base. This is mm-hmm. as much like you know having a bat cave as it is having a castle with a bunch of retainers. It's just having a place for your stuff that is your place that you return to between adventures. The last time I played anything that had anything resembling building a castle and attracting followers was when we did the Kingmaker campaign. (laughs) Uh, And we got to the point where we got the castle and started working on it. And all of us realized this is this is like homework. We we don't we don't want to do this anymore. We had like one player who was actually invested in doing all of the accounting stuff to actually make the kingdom work. Mm -hmm. And we're like. I just want to go hit some monsters again. And honestly, in broad strokes, that's probably not a bad comparison because I know in that, like, if you invested the money to have this type of building, Mm -hmm. you could generate this type of resource. And that's kind of how this works. Right. Um, Depending on where you put your money into establishing your bastion, you generate bastion points and you can give orders to people. And if you have the facilities for it, it takes like seven days and you spend a certain amount of bastion points. And then when you come back after seven days, you have a thing, whether it's like a new map to a location that you didn't have before, or it's, um, you know, information that they researched for you, or it's a magic item or something like that. In a way, it's sort of the reverse of what you currently do with downtime days. Like downtime days are when you are not adventuring, you spend this much gold in this many days and you do this thing. This is sort of like when you get ready to leave, you tell somebody that's, you know, at your place, hey, can you work on making me a magic sword? I'm going to be back in two weeks. <laughs> it does very sound, sound very much like Kingmaker. Now, I will say I loved the Kingmaker video game mm-hmm. because then I could deal with that type of stuff on my own terms when I felt like it and go adventuring when I felt like it. Whereas when it was at the table, it was more of a cooperative thing with a bunch of players and I could see like, us losing some of the other players at the table. So mm-hmm. this is, I could see this working really well for some groups and mm-hmm. not as well for other groups. And they had mentioned that this is something either everyone can sink their gold and their bastion points into the same things and maybe have a headquarters for everybody. Or this can be something like, you know, your rogue in the group has his little hideaway with a group of henchmen where he does things in between, you know, adventuring. Mm-hmm. So you can run it either way like that. My take on it, and I I have only done a cursory read of this. I haven't, you know, sat down and played with numbers or made a spreadsheet. By the way, if you think I'm joking, no, I probably will make a spreadsheet for this. I do that. 
but <laughs> <laughs> see jared's the one that would be doing yes. all of the spreadsheets to maintain <laughs> the kingdom or the bastion exactly and the other thing that they said is they wanted to address that thing where there are some people that are like we don't have enough gold or we don't have enough things to spend gold on and that is that is also a thing yeah <laughs> I like it in principle. It is way too detailed now. This takes up like 20 pages of a playtest and it gets way <laughs> too granular. I think they really need to strip it down just to you spend X amount of gold. You have this module that you can add to your base that lets you do this thing. I can see having that much content towards this in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yeah. Where there would be the space to have this much content. The current Dungeon Master's Guide has a lot of content oh, yeah. like that. There's a lot of stuff in there that's cool that none of us ever really pay much attention to, you know, but it's still there to use if you want. But like for the playtest, we're still like, where's the meat? Mm -hmm. Where's the beef? <laughs> Speaking of the beef, give us a quick rundown on what they're doing with the cantrips. Cantrips are pretty simple. Acid Splash can now hit. Four people instead of two, if you time it, if you, you know, if you hit it at that intersection of four squares, you could actually hit four people. So it's more of a area effect. Um, Blade Ward is a reaction now so that it's a little bit more useful for people. You don't have to spend your action to make someone less able to get hit. Chill Touch is now actually a touch. It's no, it's no <laughs> longer God. a ranged. Uh... <laughs> um, Friends does not make people actively hostile as soon as it ends. Also, thank God, because mm -hmm. I've made characters that are supposed to be social and looked at this cantrip and gone, oh, hell no. Mm -hmm. That's useless. <laughs> yeah. Poison Spray's damage went up a little bit because that was kind of one of the weaker things for the range mm -hmm. that it had. And True Strike, now you get to attack as part of casting the cantrip. So it's not, again, it's not something where you're spending your action, making yourself a little bit more likely to hit and then spending another action later the hit it's just part of you know the attack is part of the action to cast the spell making it actually you know useful so it's it's little tweaks this packet moved us a little bit more into as you said what we might see more in the dmg as well as doing some maintenance on you know a pretty foundational part of the game i.e cantrips <laughs> any thoughts on this or should we just move on not a lot i just i i like bastions i think they need to simplify them a little bit so moving away from officially D D. Let's look at Level Up Advanced 5e from N-World. This one actually was begun before <laughs> the, the great OGL debacle of January 2023 and was always conceived as a more granular version of 5th edition and kind of trying to incorporate more of like the moving parts that we saw in 3.5. So tell us a little bit about this thing. So like the things we were really looking at in this episode are all things that they're going to have their own player's handbook. You don't necessarily need, you know, to have the 2014 player's handbook to play these games. And Advanced 5e has a player's guide. It's got, you know, a GM's guide. It's got a monster's, you know, all of that stuff. But what's interesting is they're crowdfunding a box set for a starter set. And, you know... I think starter sets are a good idea for getting people on board. But one of the things that's really interesting about the starter set is unlike, say, like the D&D starter set or the Pathfinder starter set, it's not going to have the advanced 5e rules as, you know, teaching someone those rules. It's actually going to assume that you're starting with a fifth edition character and showing you how to convert that character over to a 5e. 
Interesting. It's interesting to me. I don't know. And I've looked at A5e. It is more granular, but it's not so granular that the system doesn't work. You could have somebody at the table with an advanced 5e ranger next to somebody playing a 2014 player's handbook fighter, and it's not going to throw anything off. It's just that that ranger has their abilities are a little more granular. You know, it's it's going to let you customize where you would normally get a thing. You might pick from three things, you know, stuff like that is what they, they do with A5e. So it's, it's kind of, you know, introducing that having the more options at each juncture of the class. And they're also going to include a three-part adventure path, pre-generated characters, tokens, and I think it was like five poster maps. It's interesting to see another company outside of some of the bigger companies doing a a starter set. Yeah, and starter sets are a great way to get people into your game because I, I wish more companies were able to do them. Mm-hmm. But it is a pretty big financial investment to put them out there. Yeah, and I would say I don't think the extra granularity is for me with Advanced 5e, but I will say... I do like their monster book because there are some monsters that I like how they kind of tweak them and made them a little bit more interesting or juggled around what challenge rating they should be so that they fill niches a little bit better. Um, So it's an interesting thing to keep your eye on. Now, is this going to be something that can kind of work in conjunction with a normal fifth edition gamers or it's supposed to be completely separate? In theory, it's separate, but from all of the rules that I've seen, you could take an adventure, for example, written for Advanced 5e and run it for 5e. Mm-hmm. Your NPCs might have more skills than your PCs have listed on you know under their thing, but it's still going to run the same way. A lot of the things are like, like I said, like when you go to this level in 5th edition, you get this ability if you're a ranger. And instead in A5e, it's like, choose from one of these three abilities, you know, instead. Gotcha. So that kind of stuff still works pretty well. Vice versa, if you had people that all made their characters with advanced 5e, you could run like Storm King's Thunder and you wouldn't have any problems with it. Gotcha. Well, moving on, uh, next up, we've got Kobold Press's game, Tales of the Valiant. During the OGL debacle, they announced their own game under the name Project Black Flag. Uh, they fairly quickly revealed that the name was going to be Tales of the Valiant, and it started to pick up speed. They ran a successful Kickstarter for the game that closed back in June uh, and have since released a fair amount of playtest content for it. They have. It's What's interesting is they've released a lot of playtest content, but it is not formatted or sectioned off quite the way that WotC does it. Yeah. Summary of what they had before the playtest or before the Kickstarter happened. We got backgrounds, um, not many, but we got a few. Um, we got dwarf, elf, human, small folk, and wildlings. We had the fighter and wizard and we got what those looked like from first through eighth level. And we got to see what rogues are first through fifth level. And one of the big things that they did with spells, they also broke them into these broader schools so that you have an arcane and a primordial, not primal, and divine. <laughs> and also they basically just said ritual spells, you can't even cast those using a spell slot. You can only use them as ritual spells now. They just kind of remove that from... I mean, that kind of makes sense because a lot of the rituals... Yeah, a lot of them aren't that much faster if you use them by themselves anyway, so... 
in my experience, if you had a ritual spell, there was rarely a reason to cast it mm-hmm. in combat or on the fly. It was better to take the 10 minutes to cast it. Mm-hmm. So why waste a spell slot on it? Oh, yeah. So that was what they had before the Kickstarter. They did the Kickstarter for Tales of the Valiant. These are the, the things they've released. And since I'm a backer, I've gotten to see the stuff they released publicly. And then I've gotten to see the stuff they only released to the backers. So they released Druid and Rangers first through 10th level. They released to the public the Cleric first through 20th level. They released Bard, Machinist, and Warlock first through 8th level. They released an Orc lineage and a Siderian lineage. What's a Siderian, Jared? The Siderian is kind of like what they did with the small folk. Instead of specifically having halflings and gnomes, now halflings and gnomes, who gives a crap whether you're a halfling or a gnome? You're a small folk, but you can take these minor things that make you a little more gnomey or a little more halflingy. Siderians <laughs> are, you are from a family that has planar ties. So you could be either a tiefling or an Asimar, depending on what you pick from that Siderian lineage. Some of the things that we learned from seeing the cleric is that the subclasses, they are sticking with what Watsi was doing earlier in the playtest, which is standardizing all the subclass levels. And those subclass levels are going to be 3rd, 7th, 11th, and 15th. I actually kind of like standardizing the subclasses. I mean, I know there was a lot of pushback on it, and it broke a lot of the old subclasses in 5th edition. But as far as organization goes, I like this a little better. Yeah, I mean, the part of my brain that likes things put in neat boxes likes it. The part of my brain that likes all of the stuff that I've bought over the last 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Another interesting thing they did is each class now at 10th level gets something where they choose between one of two abilities. So it's almost a little bit like what we were talking about in A5E, except it's only at that 10th level spot. Just as an example, I'm not saying this is exactly how it works, but like for a ranger, you might get one option that makes you a better archer and one option that makes you a better melee fighter. And that's a decision that you're making at 10th. One of the things I kind of want, when when you mentioned the the A5E having the, you make these choices, Mm -hmm. one of the pitfalls I've seen designers fall into is setting up these choices and there being an obviously superior choice. Yes. Video game designers end up with this as well. They offer characters a choice at certain levels. Yes, there, there's a choice, but there's no real choice. There's no real choice because <laughs> if you want to be effective, you need to take A. B and C, sure, they might have the flavor you want, but you're going to be useless. And if you're playing an MMO or some sort of team game, you're going to get chastised for, why did you pick that ability? That's useless. Uh, yeah. It's not quite as extreme in tabletop RPGs because I've seen people make some of these mm-hmm. subpar choices work, but there still have been those situations where it's like, these are your choices. You're going to take this one because these other two don't really work that well. Mm-hmm. So unless they're careful, I could see this being a problem. And it reminds me a little bit of something that third edition did when they were doing replacement levels where it was like, instead of taking what you normally get at third level, you take this replacement level and you get this class ability instead which Pathfinder then kind of turned into their archetypes. And yeah, some of those, it starts turning it into, I have so many decision points here. And I, you know, yeah, it feels like subclasses are a much easier decision point than making too many granular points at each level that you're taking. No, I, I and I'm not saying don't give players choices. Mm-hmm. Just be mindful of the choices they're getting in these, these spots. Definitely. 
Um, so the machinist, I wanted to point out that is um, basically if you're missing the artificer, Cobalt Press has got you covered with a machinist. It is very similar. <laughs> it is. It's obviously not the exact same as you know the Watsi version, and that's probably wise of them not to make it the exact same. So unfortunately, you couldn't take like an artificer subclass and plug it into the machinist because they won't line up. Yeah. But it is that concept where gotcha. you are someone that is producing magical effects by using pseudoscience. Tales of the Valiant so far has been an interesting mix of ambitious and safe, depending upon what part of the game system they're focusing on. Do you think they've kind of hit the right mix for this? It is so hard to tell because as I was reading those off, the cleric, for example, is the only class that we have seen first through 20th level. Mm -hmm. Everything else we've either seen first through fifth or first through eighth or first through 10th. And we don't even, you know, it's not even like we've only seen all of these other ones through 10th, but we've seen the clerics. It's like there's depending on which packet they released, you're seeing a different range of levels. So one, it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around exactly what they're doing. They are a smaller company than Watsi. So they're probably releasing stuff kind of as they get it into a ready for public consumption format. But at the same time, it feels a little haphazard. Yes. And I think the other thing that's kind of interesting, I know that they do have internal playtest teams. So my, by no means do I think this is not getting playtested, but they aren't really doing what Watsi's doing, where the primary playtesting is being done by all the people following the game. Mm-hmm. The primary playtesting is being done by the groups that they use for playtesting. And they're releasing these things sort of more as a teaser. They are taking feedback for them. And I do think they're listening but I, they're not getting the same type of feedback that Watsi is soliciting by releasing gotcha. almost everything all the time. Um, and, and they can't because honestly, for example, I get to see stuff as a backer that the public never sees. Right. Because they're not releasing it that way. I could see it too. I just haven't been looking because yes. I did back <laughs> yes. it too. Yes. It's strange and I don't blame them. And by no means am I you know questioning that this stuff is, is going to be playtested. They're just not relying on everybody that plays D&D having a shot at looking at at every bit of the material before it gets playtested. Right. But what is weird to me is it does seem like they are for for a game that kind of was like, no, we're going to stick more to baseline fifth edition while fifth edition, you know, goes out there and does whatever crazy thing they're doing in the uh, in the playtest. They're now actually doing some of the wilder stuff compared to all of those rollbacks yeah. that Watsi has done. Like they're standardizing subclass levels. Yeah. They've kind of swapped places. It's really kind of strange. And what's strange to me about it is literally they just released the volume one and two of Deep Magic, which has a bunch of subclasses and a new uh, two new classes in them. And those don't follow these design paradigms. Like they literally have something coming out now that aren't going to follow the design paradigms of a game that's coming out in a few months. It's strange to me. And the other thing is where they are also doing some interesting stuff. I'm finding that I like the concept, but I don't know that I like the execution. And one of those things is Mm -hmm. I like the idea that lineage and heritage are two separate things. I like the idea that if you grow up in a certain culture, you're learning certain skills and abilities because that's part of the culture and you're born with certain traits. And I like that they divided those, but at the same time, so far, some of the 
ancestries don't feel like they're the same ancestries as fifth edition. Gotcha. You know, like the halflings and gnomes do not feel like fifth edition halflings and gnomes. They are small folks that have like throwaway traits to make them a little bit more halfling like or gnome like, but not fifth edition halfling or gnome like. It's weird. It almost may be becoming something like, I know they started out as just, we're going to be our own tweak on 5th edition. Mm -hmm. It may end up having to be, you know, we are playing this game, which is influenced by 5th edition, but is not 5th edition. Kind of like Pathfinder is influenced by D&D, but it is no longer D&D. Right. And and that's what I was going to say. Even like um, Pathfinder, by the time the rules came out, Yes, it was semi, it was, it was compatible with three, five, but you had to do some hammering in a few places. Right. And I, I am getting that same feeling like for, for this too. Like, it's not just going to be an easy, oh, this class works this way and this class works this way, but otherwise it's the same. It's more like 90% of this works, but the other 10% you're going to have to, you know, really beat into a, into shape. I'm not necessarily mad at that. No. I kind of need to wait and see. I mean, I paid for it. I'm going to be getting the book regardless. Yes. Oh, yeah. But yeah, definitely. Kind of got to wait and see what they come out with. This may end up working better for me trying to restart my original Eberron campaign. We don't know. We'll see. Yeah. And I I like a lot of the ideas they have. I love their monsters. I love the setting. I love their adventures. I'm just really curious to see what all of this looks like. And it's weird because it's hard to get a big picture with how mm-hmm. they've released the Platos material so far. Speaking of not having a big picture, last but not least, let's talk about Cubicle 7's D20 system. They were working on some projects that were going to use 5e as a base, but this year, for reasons, i.e. the OGL debacle back in January, uh, they announced they would come out with their own D20 base system for those projects instead. What do we know about this one so far? All right, so we know... Almost nothing about their core system other than that they're planning on doing, you know, a player book and a DM book and all of the usuals that you would understand if you're going to release a system that can exist without referencing the core D&D books. And they basically said the player's guide and the game master's guide would be coming out later this year, but we it was indeterminate. We're into October, so I don't know. I, I love Cubicle 7, but they tend to... Stuff tends to come out a little later than they said it was going to. Yes. But some of the things that they have been talking about, they are currently kickstarting a life well lived. I mentioned that in the last podcast, but now we know a little bit more about it because the Kickstarter is actually live. And that's going to have life path, camp craft activities, uh, patrons and retirement is what that (laughs) is going to be focusing on. You know, they had previously said their player's guide was going to have life path rules in it. So I don't know if this is pulling that information out and putting it in a separate book or if this is just going to show you some life paths and there's also going to be other life paths in their player book. But they they have said that they aren't so much looking at radically redefining 5th edition as much as filling in parts of 5th edition that Watsi probably isn't as interested in doing. Right. The one thing I do know is they were working on a fifth edition version of Victoriana, Mm -hmm. and that got put on hold for them to work on this and for Victoriana to work with that instead of fifth edition. Yes, because they have they have actually announced that that when they released the what was going to just say 5e, you know, Victoriana, it's actually going to be C7 D20. Victoriana. Yeah. 
Um, basically, they're kind of unifying their banners, but they're 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 basically saying, like, for example, um, the Uncharted Journeys, which I reviewed earlier this year. I love that book. It takes like the uh, the One Ring uh, journey rules and makes them work a little bit better for Five E. If you can, you know, if you actually have people using Five E classes, I really like how that works. And that seems like the space they want to play with in this, where they're going to take stuff like downtime and use completely different systems for it then it's not just you spend x number of days and x amount of gold and you get this it's going to be a more granular sort of like if you do this then you know these are your choices so you're spending a little bit more time role playing those downtime activities and not just using it as basically a resource it should be interesting to see what they do with it Mm -hmm. i have a personal vested interest in seeing victoriana (laughs) come out i kind of wrote something for it so hopefully it'll see the light of day sometime soon. Oh, definitely. And the other thing that's interesting is they have mentioned that they may not be putting out the same core classes for their, you know, C7, D20 as the 2014. And it's not so much like they're going to say, you know, th- the point is that they might have a different warrior class that doesn't work exactly like the fighter does. And it will probably still work in a game with the fighter but their core concept of who the fighting person is in their game might be a little different than, you know, what Watsi is doing with theirs because they don't feel quite as constrained with saying we need a fighter. We need a Druid. We need a Paladin. You know, they, they are kind of more free to say, okay, these are the fantasy archetypes we want to turn into classes. Very interesting. I, I mean, ultimately kind of as a closing thought on this whole thing, There's a lot of interesting, exciting things happen. (laughs) I have no idea what the D&D landscape is going to look like going into the future, other than (laughs) people will still be playing D&D or D&D-esque games. Honestly, that's my main thing with all of this is I am excited when new stuff comes out. I like seeing how different weird things are going to interact with each other. I mean, that's exactly why I love this kind of stuff. It's why I do reviews, so I have an excuse to look at more things even if I'll never get a chance to use them. So I'm I'm kind of in heaven here, even if I have my critiques of individual things and how they work. I love that there is so much stuff in the works. So I'm excited. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look at something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. If you've been listening for a while, you all know I love my YouTube videos. This time, I wanted to share a non-gaming channel that happened to cover a (laughs) gaming-related thing. Cinema Therapy is a channel where they talk about movies in relation to mental health issues. They have some great series, like they kind of do Anatomy of a Hero, Anatomy of a Villain, and Mm -hmm. look at the mental health issues that are part of some of these major characters we know. Mm Mm-hmm. It's two guys. One is a therapist. The other is a filmmaker. They refer to themselves as the dads. They're hilarious. (laughs) I love them. In one of their recent videos, they took a look at Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves and how it (laughs) relates to the way we deal with grief. And it was a really, really well done episode with a lot of love for the movie and a lot of, I really wish I could play D&D. Uh, It just made me really, really happy. And we'll have a link to that episode in the show notes. I'm still kind of floored by that movie just because 
it was better on so many levels than I expected it to be. And yes. it, it had so much heart to it that I was not expecting. They actually talk about that a lot in the Cinema Therapy episode. Mm-hmm. Like I said, they always come at it from the two sides, both the therapy side and the filmmaking side. And the the filmmaker was talking about how the movie hits the right tone of, yes, these actors know they're in this weird movie, but at the same time, they still play true to the emotions and the heart of the story. Even if it's something ridiculous where they're throwing Jonathan out of a window to escape a prison, you know. Or rescuing a cat from a fish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. I feel bad because I didn't look up a lot to um, recommend. And part of that's because, and I know, I know technically we're not influencers. We don't get paid to do any of this stuff. But while the the uh, SAG after strike is still going on, I still don't want to like say, hey, go watch this thing on the streaming service. And it's driving me crazy because there's some interesting fantasy things that are out right now. You know, just because I know all the people that run all the streaming services listen to us. I'm not going to endorse. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I mean, if they want to pay me influencer money, I'll take it. So hopefully... They will. Um, I'm glad the writer strike is over, and I'm hoping that the uh, the actor strike is going to be over soon. But in the meantime, Dimension Twenty has new content going up again now, and they are actively filming new seasons or new um, you know new campaigns as well. So that content pipeline of them playing games and putting them up on the uh, Dropout site is all in motion again now. So. I'm happy. I'm excited. I love watching those. So I'm excited about that. Also, as a side note, college humor doesn't exist anymore. They just changed everything's name to drop out. So <laughs> if you ever want to um actually somebody, just point out that college humor doesn't exist anymore and it's all dropout. <laughs> we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. So we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying us, consider checking out Pandas Talking Games, queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Senda every Wednesday answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing TTRPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. We've used up all our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. <laughs>